What is crackalackin' Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli coming at you without my fantabulous co-host Adam Brommel. I am, however, going to be excited to talk some Knicks with you. We have the the folks over from Knicks Film School, uh, Andrew Claudio and John Macri, are going to hop on in a little bit. But first, we kind of have to talk about the NBA draft lottery. I'm just going to go through my my biggest questions that I have or things to watch post-lottery to see what happens leading into the draft or, or after it, given the order that happened. Quick shout-out to that Phoenix Suns-Los Angeles Clippers game in Game 2, aside from the, the replays, which took 30 minutes to finish the final 90 seconds of the game. It was a riveting performance. That inbounds play that won the Suns the game, holy crap. Series is fantastic. Uh, excited to continue watching it. Looks like CP3 is going to come back in Game 3 as well. This feels like the Suns are really going to win. I know the Clippers have already erased a pair of 2-0 deficits, but they're probably not going to get Kawhi Leonard back, so I don't really know what the path is for them winning if CP3 returns, and then if they're not going to get Kawhi, and you're at a point where Reggie Jackson or Nick Batum or Marcus Morris or Blue Kennard has to be like your second and third best player on any given night behind Paul George, who continues to make a meme of himself after missing two clutch free throws in a row during Game 2. That's not why we're here, though, to talk about that series. We'll delve in deeper during our locker room session, probably on this Sunday. Uh, we are moving the schedule based around the games, so we'll take a look at that, and we'll always have the promo tweets on Twitter. Come, join us for Locker Room. It's a good time. We have a few reoccurring listeners who come roll through. They'll ask questions in the chat. They'll come on and speak. It helps us out a lot when you guys come join us live, and then you can download and listen to it again later, or at least just download it to juice those numbers. If this is your first time listening, please, Rate, review, subscribe to Hardwood Knox, wherever you get your podcast, but especially on iTunes, whether or not you like it. I've not asked for it in a while, so maybe if this is your first time or if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't done it yet, head over and do that. Follow us on Twitter as well, at Hardwood Knox. We can also be found on YouTube, a channel that is growing, and I swear, probably some point over the offseason, we'll actually have video with mine and Adam's faces gleaming on it. Let's talk NBA draft lottery, though. Uh, Pistons win the first pick. They get Cade Cunningham. I know there's already a report that it's not a done deal. Cade Cunningham is going to the Detroit Pistons. That is a no-brainer at this point. Rolling through the order really quickly, two is Houston, three is Cleveland, four is Toronto, five is Orlando, six is Oklahoma City Thunder, seven is Golden State, eight is Orlando. That comes via the Bulls. Nine is Sacramento. Ten is New Orleans. Eleven is Charlotte. 12 is San Antonio, 13 is Indiana, and 14 is again Golden State. And remember the seventh pick for Golden State that came via the Timberwolves. Immediately, a bunch of things stand out. And I'm not going to ask questions only about necessarily the lottery, but that's really where this geared towards. The Raptors jumping up to four, not this huge leap. I believe they had the seventh best odds going into the lottery. What are they going to do with that pick? And you, know, you can look at prospects that I have not delved deep enough into my my draft prep work to say, oh, they should target this player. I'm just much more curious as to what this will do to inform their direction. Uh, I'm assuming they're going to end up with Jalen Sugg seems to be the consensus number four, him or Jalen Green. I think a lot of people have Evan Mobley mostly going two or three. And so I would guess that Jalen Green or Jalen Suggs falls to Toronto. 
my gut would say you keep that pick, which is fine. But are you keeping that pick, bringing in that, bringing in Jalen Green or Jalen Suggs, and keeping Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Fleet and OG Ananobi and just being good enough to win now? Maybe because that's the the setup that you're in. I still just sort of wonder if this could potentially push the Raptors towards more of a gradual rebuild. I would like to see them bring Kyle Lowry back if he's willing to return and assuming they're going to play in Toronto next season, because I think they could be super competitive while bringing along a top four pick. This isn't a golden warrior, a golden state warrior situation where they're just kind of barren after their top guys. There's real depth there. If you look at a healthy Chris Boucher, uh, Malachi Flynn looked really good towards the end of the year. Uh, they also have, we already mentioned Siakam at Anobi, Fred Van Fleet. That team is just, it's deeper. And we, I think that they could straddle those two timelines if they really wanted to. The other scenario would be, do you go nuclear and maybe dangle that fourth pick in a trade? Because this is considered like a four star potential draft. It sounds like right now, I can't believe I didn't even just mention Gary Chen Jr. It was also a restricted free agent. And so just all those pieces together. And then even like Utah Watanabe showed just a ton during the regular season. Could you dangle that pick? Would you be willing to trade number four in this draft for Bradley Beal if you think he's going to resign? I mean, there's other moving parts to that deal. You're probably looking at Bradley Beal and number four, maybe another pick, 2023, could be because it postdates as of now his free agency. If Washington says yes to that and, and Beal says that he's going to resign or he's willing to resign, you could bring back Kyle Lowry. Fred Van Fleet is. is Big time for the Raptors, make no mistake. He probably could have made all defense this year. He definitely should have gotten more all defense consideration. I did not have him on one of my two teams, but he definitely he was among my honorable mentions. So losing him is big. He was also their lottery representative, so I guess that's kind of weird. But if you wanted to, that is a route you could go now with the fourth pick. And so I think it just opens up these different avenues where it's a high enough pick where you could look at it as essentially the future of your franchise, and maybe you're not as inclined to move. You know, Fred Van Fleet, still 26, you could look at him as young enough to do a quasi-reset. Uh, oh, excuse me, Fred Van Fleet turned 27. That's my mistake. You have OG Ananobi, definitely young enough there. Do you maybe look at shopping Pascal Siakam at that point because you're the number four pick? You're not drafting someone in all likelihood that you think is going to end up replacing him. And he, at 27 as well, like isn't super old. It's just, I feel like before, if they were going to end up in seventh and you were not going to have one of these top four picks... It was more cut and dry where it's right, just bring in the prospect and then it's not going to be determining. You probably have him, try and groom him, bring him along slowly, tread water somewhere in the middle. It feels like there could be three more significant decisions where it's let's let's bring back Kyle Lowry and we could be and Gary Trent Jr. and be a lot better than expected if we were keeping the band together because we have this higher upside rookie. Do we use this pick? Would be the second. Would be the other op- another option to try and bring in some win now talent. We don't know which stars are going to be available. There's always ones that's that pop up. I think with a top four pick though in this year's draft, I'd give it up for Zach Levine personally. I don't know if I'm doing that. Yeah, I, I'd probably do it if I'm the Raptors. It, I'm not giving up as much for him as I would for Bradley Beal, but those are two guys that feel like they have feasible paths to being on the auction block. I'm sure the star market will develop beyond that. Or the third scenario would be, do you look at this and say, all right, we have like a real building block here now, and maybe it's better if we go through a more gradual rebuild, and we're going to be willing to shop some of our 
older guys. Let Kyle Lowry walk, maybe look at Siakam if Red Van Fleet trades, and consider the core, you know, whoever it may be to them. Is it is it Malachi Flynn? But it's definitely OG Ananobi. And then, again, in my estimation, a Jalen Suggs or a, a Jalen Green, maybe even Gary Trent Jr., who is 23. My next question, obviously, would be, what's going to happen with the Golden State Warriors? Number 7 and 14, like, those are good picks to have. You have Stephen Curry. You have Klay Thompson coming back. You have Draymond Green. You have Andrew Wiggins. Your window is now. And I think you have an obligation to continue trying to win so long as Stephen Curry exists. You need to shop these picks. And I think the problem with not jumping in with even one of these selections into the top four, and they only could have kept Minnesota's pick if it was fourth because it was top three protected. So had it gone any higher, it would have stayed with Minnesota. But not having that top four pick really hurts them in trade talks because I don't think if you want to get Zach Levine or if you want to get a Bradley Beal, and I'm not saying those are the only guys out there. I just, they seem like they are most likely to be available. You're going to also have to attach James Wiseman and then other stuff as well. And then now you're also in this issue of because the salary, the cap holds are lower on these rookies than they would have been had they been in the top four. You're going to have to include other salary in these bigger deals. The Warriors don't have. Uh, excuse me, I'm exhausted. I'm recording this at 4.40 in the morning, Eastern time. But the Warriors do not have those mid-end salaries to attach into these trades. They have Steph is making 45.8 if we're looking at next year's salary. Clay is at 30, 38 about. Andrew Wiggins is at 31.6. Tremont is at a, at a cool 24. And then it drops off from there, where James Wiseman, as of right now, is actually their fifth highest paid player at 9.2. Kevon Looney is sixth at 5.2. It's a He has a, a player option. So a lot of the things they do, if it's a Beal trade, just because Beal's salary next season is 34.5, you're either looking at, okay, Andrew Wiggins has to be included, or we're doing an Oubre sign-in trade. If you were going after a Zach Levine, who I maintain is a good fit for this roster, a little bit more workable, just because you have his $19.5 million salary, which is super low. So you can get away with Wiseman, Looney, then using this uh, the number 14 pick, and you also have the number seven pick, like using those as actual salaries, trading them. You can come to an agreement whenever. We know how this works, but trading them 30 days after they sign their contract. And then other stuff. I just feel like the other stuff has to be more significant now because you didn't jump in the lottery. I honestly don't know what the Warriors will do. My guess would be that they probably don't make any significant splashes just because they seem to be very confident in their ability to develop these players. I don't know that they can do that while also juggling the attempt to reopen their title window, but they also have a low-maintenance superstar in Steph where he he has his three titles, he has his two MVPs. It's not that he doesn't want to compete, but he might be okay with, I want to be a Warriors lifer, and he's not going to try and force their hand by using the the threat of his free agency in 2022. By the way, he's extension eligible now, so he could say he won't sign one and that he'll leave. Um, that would be wildly out of character, and that that would just be absurd. So I don't know what players will be available again, though. That's what this comes back to, and it's sort of the same question with the... Uh, with the Raptors too. Although the Warriors, there's more urgency there. It feels like there's more doors open for the Raptors because they don't have that top five player right now. You have, you know, Siakam or Fred Van Fleet. Like those are guys that I think Siakam 
probably peaks as like, or already has peaked as like a, that top 20, top 25 guy. And then last season, he sort of dropped off after that. But for the Warriors specifically, shop the pick, plural, and, and other stuff. And you have to, I think now you're more likely, what does that other stuff look like? James Wiseman and number seven would be my guess are probably the two main attractions that are included in any deal. Whereas if you had a top four pick, maybe you get away with not including number 14 or not including Wiseman or not giving up as many future picks. And look, if I'm a team, I know front offices don't think this big picture because they don't have that type of job security. But if I'm a team, I'm looking at the Warriors' long-term future, the age, Clay Thompson, Stephen Curry, Draymond Green, all on the wrong side of 30. Yes, you could be sending them a really good player now, but unless you're sending them someone like who's super young, like a Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who was a trade target I suggested for the Warriors, uh, or or if Carl Anthony Towns decided he went out of Minnesota, again, I'm not saying he would, but someone who's like 25 or younger, you start looking down the line, Golden State owes a 2024 pick to Memphis. It's loosely protected, assuming it conveys. You you go out to 2026, 2027, shorting their future is not the, the dumbest decision in the world because there's a chance that they might just be bad by that point. So if you can get some looser protections on that and you're in a position where you're going to make a move anyway, I don't think that's a bad asset. And what the Warriors can also do is by waiting to complete deals before the end of this draft, you can get this year's picks from them and then also 2022. Uh, So that helps as well. And look, we've seen teams. You look at New Orleans with Drew Holiday and New Orleans with Anthony Davis and Houston with James Harden. They've taken these far out future picks. It feels like these hauls for for top, say, 25 guys. Drew Holiday's probably right on the fringes of that. They're getting bigger. Uh, and it's a lot, you know, a lot of it is because these are contenders that are going after these bigger names. The Warriors are in a similar boat where, yeah, if they got a Bradley Beal, I don't know that they're as threatening as the big three in Brooklyn. Overall, though, you expect them to be good in the interim. And so those future picks, and yes, the immediate ones, because they have lottery in this case, which Milwaukee didn't, uh, the Lakers did have the lottery pick, them jumping up into that DeAndre Hunter territory ended up helping out their trade package a big, uh, a great deal. That helps the Warriors' immediacy, but you are you do have to look at that down-the-line value. And I'm just very curious to see what winds up happening with their offseason. I'm also looking at teams that are... I don't. I'm, I probably say this every year, so I do not want to say that I think there are teams with more accelerated windows that are in the lottery. It just... That's probably a, a thing I could say every single season. But you look at, like, Sacramento at 9, even New Orleans at 10, Charlotte at 11 the Spurs at 12 and the Pacers at 13. Like those are five teams that I would assume have semi-immediate aspirations. The Spurs, I think are the wildest card there just because Greg Popovich is 72. And as long as he's in San Antonio, my guess would be that they don't go full tilt into a rebuild. They did hand out second contracts to DeJounte Murray and Derek White already. At the same time, they're at that natural reset point where you have DeMar DeRozan, Patty Mills, and Rudy Gay entering free agency. You already got rid of LaMarcus Aldridge. You have, you can get, I think, uh, I have them pegged at nearly $50 million in cap space if they want to to max it out. Uh, so, the, the, like, that's a ton of money that you don't want in this year's market. And so do you maybe prioritize taking on bad contracts that are going to be attached to other picks? Is that market even going to be booming when teams aren't trying to clear money necessarily for this summer? Or do you go the other route and say, well, we have this money. 
uh, we're going to spend big on free agents. My point being, it would be uncharacteristic for the Spurs to make a trade or move out of number 12. But if there's still that push to make the playoffs, like, could that be in play? The Kings are another wild card because it feels like they're sort of in crap or get off the pot mode right now. They're so stuck in the sub-middle of the NBA that they need to pick a direction. Do you look at selling off Harrison Barnes, Buddy Heald? How much does Rashawn Holmes' price tag factor into that decision? They have only early bird rights on him. And so effectively, not to... I don't want to lose anybody in the salary cap, Manusha. They can pay him either around the league average salary or they have to dip into cap space. And so my guess would be that he goes for more than between 10 or $11 million, which is what they would be allowed to pay him before dipping into cap space. They don't have cap space right now, so you need to clear money. And if he leaves, you're a substantially worse team because he was there on balance, I would say second best player overall last year. Uh, behind De'Aaron Fox. Like, that was the only one that I look at who's better. Maybe Tyrese Halliburton has stretches of more impact. So do you lean into a rebuild and say, hey, we're just going to rejigger this around Fox, Tyrese Halliburton, we'll see who we get at number nine as well. Maybe they, you know, Marvin Bagley showed hints of, like, outside shooting again last year and sort of perked up at points. Do they view him as part of the core? Or do you maybe move number nine and try and make that all-ish in play that we've seen Phoenix make? when they went after Chris Paul. It wasn't, they didn't give up like this huge ransom. It was a matter of great opportunity for them. But if you want to be competitive and keep Harrison Barnes, don't want to get rid of Buddy Heald, if you actually want to be a playoff threat in the West, like you got to stop existing in this sub-middle. You have to pick one way or the other. And so of these five, we're looking at Indiana, San Antonio, Charlotte, New Orleans, and Sacramento. My guess would be Sacramento is the most likely to move the pick. I view them as a little bit less of a wild card for San Antonio because I've, I can never read San Antonio, and, and most league insiders can't read San Antonio either. They just operate in total mysterity. I would be curious to see what Sacramento could build with the number nine pick. I don't view Marvin Bagley necessarily as a net positive asset right now, but if you're intrigued by what he can do in the open floor, surround him with enough spacing, he does have an interesting floor game. If you do believe that he can knock down standstill jumpers um, on long twos and and even from three, then yeah, his value butches up a bit. Uh, could it be something like, let's say, number nine, Marvin Bagley, Robert Woodard, and then a, a lotto protected 2022 first for Jonathan Isaac. Like, I think that level of player would be who they're looking at. I don't know that they can get into a big wig conversation, nor do I know that they need to. What is Bradley Beal doing for the league's worst defense last season? They have De'Aaron Fox, they have Tyrese Halliburton. Yeah, he really, really ups your offense. I mean, if, if Bradley Beal said he wanted to come to Sacramento via trade, but I don't know that they would be a team where I say Toronto or Golden State should go after Zach Levine. While Levine is very good, I don't know that I would encourage Sacramento to do that. I think they either need to target guys that are more two-way impact players or or who really just move the defensive needle, like a Jonathan Isaac, where Orlando is just ushered in the rebuild. And yes, they have uh, the Chicago's pick at number eight, in addition to their own at number five. They landed at, would they be willing to take on a third? Can they move nine and eight or nine and five or eight and five to try and move up? Which teams in the top four would even consider moving out of their spots? I don't know that any of them would. So there's, there's moving parts there. I am curious to see what the Pelicans entertain doing. Uh, they probably just end up keeping this pick. 
but they do have some money that could stand to be moved off their books if they want to keep Lonzo and Josh Hart and dangling number 10 to get off of Steven Adams or Eric Bledsoe while bad form on its own. Maybe that's the ticket to building deals. We're actually bringing back positive value or impact players. and You're not just washing off money. Uh, Indiana, again, a team that feels like they should want to win soon. They're, you know, you look at that potential five man lineup of Turner's a bonus, Warren, Karis Levert and Malcolm Brogdon didn't lock a single minute together this past season. They could be really impactful. That's a nice, well-balanced team. Uh, it does feel like there's going to be some roster turnover there, whereas this, the offseason, they finally break up the big man duo of Sabonis and Turner. And my guess would be that they trade Turner. Are you packaging him? How are you viewing that deal? Are you trying to divest him into multiple maybe role players and while lessening your payroll so that you can afford to bring back TJ McConnell and Doug McDermott without dipping into the tax? Or are you going to lean the other way? And is it, you know, Miles Turner and throwing number 13 out there and seeing what that can get you? Maybe in addition to some other stuff, you do have Aaron Holiday, Jeremy Lamb's salary makes for good sal- um, matching fodder. So I- I'm so fascinated with a lot of those end of lottery teams. And one of my overarching questions for the draft this year is well, oh, let's start here. Let's get one more team specific question before I look at the bigger picture, maybe even two more. Chicago. This was a disaster for them. They had the top four protected pick they owed to Orlando. It's obviously conveying because it's going to number eight. You make that deal. I don't want to hear that this was about kind of moving past this season. You make that deal this season because you wanted to make the play-in tournament. I know missing Zach Levine. I can't remember the moment. I think he had COVID, but he he missed a couple weeks. That ended up hurting you. I understand that happened, but you missed the play-in. And then you sent out the eighth pick to Orlando. Yeah, you still have Vooch, but you didn't need him towards the end of this season because you didn't make the plan. That was the whole point of that trade. And now, what's your avenue towards improving this roster? You can get some cap space, but you're not going to have a ton unless you waive the partial guaranteed deals of Thomas Sadoransky, who's partially guaranteed $5 million, and then Thaddeus Young, who's partially guaranteed $6 million. And I don't know why you'd want to get pay Thaddeus Young to go away when he can still be an impact defender for you. And even Thomas Sadoransky to, to provide you with some secondary ball handling. And if you do carve out cap space, are you going to look at renegotiating and extending Zach Levine before you look at trying to add talent? Yes. You can wait until one, he's not signing an extension. It's going to be a renegotiate and extend where he can immediately increase his salary next season, what you need cap space to do, or he's going to wait to 2022 free agency where he will have max offers. And that's why you're not going to sign an extension that can only give him 120% raise off of that $19.5 million number next year, because he has the ability to make more than $10 million more than that as a starting salary in, in free agency. And if you don't renegotiate and extend him with your cap space. You risk losing him for nothing in 2022 free agency. It's really just that simple, assuming you keep him, because there's a there's a chance you make the playoffs. The East is still open in that way. There's also a chance that you flame out during those playoffs, or you don't make those playoffs at all. And he just has eyes for another franchise. There will be teams with max room, teams that are better, closer to competing for a title, or just going deeper into the playoffs. You really need to have a feel for what he's thinking. You also need to to weigh the cost of renegotiating and extending him now, because if you clear cap space to do that, that's your move. You haven't brought back Larry Marketing unless you somehow just cut a ton of money 
elsewhere. You're not making any of these other big time moves. You're not using cap space to sign guys who really help you. You're limited then to using the room exception as opposed to the mid-level exception. And so you're losing that spending tool or the ability to operate as an over-the-cap team if you need cap space to renegotiate and sign Levine. Is this Bulls team, as presently constituted, with a healthy Zach Levine and Vooch, are they guaranteed to make the playoffs? And in that scenario, I'm assuming if you renegotiate and extend Zach Levine, Larry Markkinen is not back. I just honestly don't know. And so that's that's a team to watch just because... I don't think this has to be a matter of Zach Levine asking for out. I think the Bulls, after that Vooch trade, are now confronting awkward realities following their failure to make the play-in tournament. And maybe this is all. Maybe they go the other direction, too. You still have Kobe White. You have future draft equity if you're willing to trade out beyond your 2023 pick pending that obligation to Orlando. You have Patrick Williams, who I would not suggest moving. I thought he was uh, spectacular, and it ended up providing good value for someone who was drafted at fourth, basically out of nowhere. Everyone was shocked by that pick. Do you try and package those together to to take another swing? Again, I don't know who the player is that you're going after, but you are sort of pot committed to this core in the sense that you already tried to win now. Uh, The other thing for me, uh, the final team specific question is the Oklahoma City Thunder. So they went into this with like a fairly good chance of having two top four picks. And you left with zero top four picks. You still have three first round picks, but six, 16, and 18 just aren't as sexy. I feel like they're going to be active on draft night. Do they use 16 and 18 to move up? Uh, what, what can they move from there? Like, what is the team that's looking to divest into two picks? Like, is Indiana so concerned at their tax bill? They would give you 13 for 16 and 18. Is that even worth it if you're Oklahoma City? They have so many picks moving forward. They're going to have some roster spot issues. And they might want to add talent via free agency. I would, I think you have to bet against that, just looking at how many players they're already going to have projected to be on the roster next year. But it feels kind of unlikely that they're going to keep all three of those picks. Maybe one of them or two of them even is a draft and stash. That's always a possibility. But they're just a team to watch at this point. And they, they're projected to have a boat load of of cap space this summer still the the Kemba Walker trade impacted that a little bit but like this is a team where if they want if you're announcing all your own free agents and this is while keeping like non-guaranteed deals for Kendrick Williams um Gabriel Deck and Lou Dort you can still get 37 plus million dollars in cap space so they if they want to take on money um they can do that I've also wondered how they're going to handle the Shea Gilgis Alexander extension situation. It's either Maxim now, Maxim in restricted free agency, or do you think about maybe trading him to see what he can fetch? And the fact that you don't have those two high-end first-round picks now, does that make it more likely? Because you could look at some of those other teams. And while you know the Raptors among the, the top four squads are the only ones that can be build as win now i don't know detroit not interested in shea houston i would guess isn't interested in shea cleveland having sexton and garland they're probably not interested in shea but toronto or orlando uh it's just or even look golden state using seven and just throwing them you use seven and wiseman like does that get you in the conversation for shea gilch alexander knowing he's extension eligible 
Um, is that something that the Thunder do? I'm not saying that they should. I would. I let me make this clear. I would pay Shea Gilders Alexander. I think he is a monster. And you just look at the improvement he made this season as being the primary engine of an offense and the efficiency that he carried. Uh, and he was almost 90% of his looks went unassisted. One of the highest shares in the league. So he is special, but he does have that plantar fascia issue. And while I'm not advocating for teams to save money, maxing out someone when you're still kind of so early in this rebuilding process, it can get a little bit awkward. Shea Gilgis Alexander is probably so young that it maybe doesn't matter to them. He is 22. He turns 23 in July. So, but the Thunder are just always a team to watch at this point. They already traded for, for Kemba Walker. Finally, overall, the question would just be like, what type of trade activity are we going to see on draft night? Uh, as I already mentioned, Oklahoma City has three first round picks. The Houston Rockets have three first round picks. Sort of the product of these superstar trades is it feels like these draft picks have been condensed. And there are teams that need to win now where, you know, they could agree to trades on draft night and then push the deal through when they're no longer future picks. So the Clippers can trade number 25. The Nuggets can trade number 26. Uh, You know, the Sixers, number 28. Brooklyn can technically trade number 27. Utah can trade number 30. Are there, we going to see contenders be like sort of aggressive? Um, because I already mentioned like those back end of the lottery teams. What are they going to do? The Lakers, number 22, that feels like a potential chip that could be used where if they're trying to land a bigger name or even help themselves complete an eventual sign and trade, but that's not something you could figure out until free agency starts legally. Anyway, the Knicks have two first round picks, number 19 and number 21 from Dallas. Is there a way to move up with those two? How many spots are you jumping up? Like, is Washington giving you 15 for 19 and 21? Is that even worth it? And if you're the Knicks, you also have to weigh, you know, having two first-round picks might not be just a bad idea because, yeah, you're good. You're really good this season. You still have to, and we'll talk about this in a few moments, there's the issue of sustainability there, and you do need to still be in talent acquisition mode. Maybe you get lucky and find, you know, an Emmanuel quickly type impact player in one of those picks. You're giving yourself two bites at that middle to the end of the first round apple to nab someone who could be part of next season's rotation, which is important. You're not looking for a 10 pole star prospect. They don't have one of those. RJ Barrett comes pretty close. He's their best chance at having one. I do think he's a legitimate option there. We just need to see what he looks like with more on ball reps as a creator for himself on off the dribble jumpers and as an initiator for others. But there feels like we could be set up to see a bunch of action on draft night towards the latter end of the draft. I don't know, looking at the top, if we'll see as much. It really, that might just hinge on the Warriors and how aggressive they're going to be on the trade market. And maybe that's just not something we even see until later on in the offseason that develops. But those, you know, at number seven, it's less of a consensus there. So you probably want to be making sure that you're picking for the team that you're eventually completing a trade with. Uh, But just teams that have those multiple firsts, Oklahoma City with three total, um, two outside the lottery, the Knicks with two um, outside the lottery, the Rockets with three in total and two outside the lottery, and then just those contenders. Feels like we might be set up to see a lot of movement on draft night, the type that you can't really see coming, the, the deals that are going to come out of the woodwork. I have talked enough about this, though. If you have any thoughts about the NBA lottery, feel free to you know throw them at, at Hardwood Knox on Twitter. I'm at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. Without further delay, though, let's get to talking some New York Knickerbockers 
basketball. We're looking at their off season, uh, talking a little bit about this season and whether the view of it has changed after they flamed out unceremoniously against the Atlanta Hawks in round one. Free agency targets. Uh, we're talking a whole bunch of stuff. RJ Barrett's development, Mitchell Robinson, Julius Randle. It was really fun. So let's get to Jonathan Macri and Andrew Claudio of Nick's Film School. What is Crackalackin, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you without my treacherous co-host, Adam Frommel. I am, however, super pleased and excited to be joined by the folks from Nick's Film School. We have Andrew Claudio and Jonathan Macri. You have heard their Twitter handles in the intro that I just recorded before we actually dropped this podcast. Um, so check them out on Twitter and be sure to check out the Knicks Film School podcast. Um, that's spectacular. I was on it once for some reason. I think they were slumming it that day, but it was a lot of fun. So check them out. YouTube, where all your podcast players are. They have the Knicks Film School letter. It is dope as F. Gentlemen, how are you doing today? John, you go first, because this uh, is this is actually pretty funny. I got top billing on this, and John is like the face of the Knicks Film School podcast. So we I mean, I go alphabetical order. I that, like I have fair. notes here. So I Andrew's will... been Andrew's been coming for the throne for a while. I know it's part of his grand uh, master plan. Listen, um, you are Stringer Bell. I am Marlo, and that is a reference you don't know I, about no, because I, you've never seen The Wire. I know oh. enough. I've read enough Bill Simmons columns over the over the uh, years to get the reference. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm well. Uh, I'm enjoying the off season. It's uh, it's weird that we're so we're recording this on lottery night. It's very strange for me to sit here and be like I don't really care what happens. Um, but it's it's a good it's a good strange. I'll say that. Top billing Andrew, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I echo about lottery night that for once I haven't cared whether. What, like what time is the lottery? We're not planning any content around the lottery tonight. You know, we're from two years ago. We pretty much shut down a bar in Midtown Manhattan with the largest capacity crowd that ESPN came because it was the Zion draft. And just two years later, it I might not even watch it. It might be driving while it happens. I'm sure I'll have interest in it, but uh, it's it's weirdly a, a optimistic time for for Knicks fans. Uh, among the three to seven listeners we have, I think two of them do know that I am like a deadingly disenchanted Knicks fan is how I classified myself. I do cover the league at large for a living, but it's nice to not have any sort of emotional investment in what happens because I like to root for chaos. But when the Knicks are involved, like, yeah, you want them to get Luca, you want them to get Zion. And there's a part of you that dies inside a little bit each time when, when they don't. So I'm, ex- I'm still going to watch because I have to, and also it's fun. And I'm ready for like the scenarios of one, four, two teams having like two of the top four picks maybe, but I'm with you two. It's exciting that they're not in the lottery. Um, But, you know, I feel like there are still so many questions about their future, despite them like really blowing expectations out of the water where for me personally, I don't know how you guys feel about this. The Cinderella-ness of this past season has kind of faded for me where I think they are in a much better position. And it feels like there was this real cultural shift but I'm also not fully confident that they're going to keep bringing this thing in the right direction. And I'm just curious as to where you two stand following everything, the regular season, what happened in the postseason, did that the way they flamed out against the Hawks, the way that Julius Randall played did that changed the way you feel at all about either one this season or two, their, their outlook. I mean, the Cinderella-ness to me of it was most relevant because as, as the, you know, 
all due respect to the Timberwolves and trying to think, I guess the Suns for large portions of, of the last 20 years, like the Knicks have been the laughing stock of the league for, for two decades. And that level of stink um, takes many a shower uh, to, to wash off. And this season washed it off, but that only matters if you nail the next steps, um, which is where we're at now. I think the, the, the other part of it that the, the playoff series kind of dulled it is like, you know, so, so why do you need to wash off the stink? You need to wash off the stink. So good players want to come play for your team, right? Okay. Well, that's, that's helpful. Not a great free agent class. Um, then you turn to Julius Randle because he's the one player that I think emerged this season as like, okay, maybe we already have that really good player. And then he went out and over the course of five games against the Hawks, um, didn't look so hot. Um, so I think I, I don't like, it hasn't washed off for me yet, but there's definitely a possibility that I'm sitting here. Um, what is it? It's, it's end of June, like two months from now. And like, depending on what they do in free agency, depending on if they make any big trades, it might be like, not that last season has like disappeared, but that the, um, the, the long-term ramifications are, are maybe more muted than we felt they would be while it was happening. Probably the best way I could, I could say it. So it's, I, I'm similar to John and I, I'm curious what they do next. And that will determine how special this season was, how much of a change there actually was and how permanent that change is. I just look at what the Hawks have done over the past two rounds. And I feel uh, personally much better that we got a game in against them, you know, at a certain point, you know, you have to accept that what the Hawks have built is actually a model that, you know, you're like a good off season away and a few correct draft choices away. And if you look at, some of the other teams with their questions, the Mavericks, the Sixers, like I would rather have the Knicks problems of acquiring stars. than we have a, a guy on a max contract already that we don't know what to do with at the moment. So the Knicks and their flexibility forever, all I've ever wanted them to be. And John, this has been one of your calling cards no. since the beginning. We just want them to be normal. We don't need them to be like extraordinary at first. Just have a season where you're normal. And with the lowest possible payroll, they made, they were the fourth seed in the Eastern Conference. So now you become this free agent destination just because you're normal. And I think that'll, that'll stem from the success they had this season and who will want to be part of that success going forward. I agree with everything you said, except I'd probably rather still have Dallas's and the Sixers problems. I'd just rather have Joel Embiid or Luka Doncic on my Fair, team. But with. that's not a problem is what I'm saying. But like the Knicks with the questions you still have to answer, the Knicks at least have the flexibility that they don't have like a, a glaring problem that you don't know the solution to with the Knicks. There are options, whereas your options are limited when you have a limited Health and I have no idea what to call Ben Simmons' problem right now. Like I don't know how to fix those problems just yet, other than prayer. You know. <laughs> no, but I—I I mean, I get what you're saying, then, and I'm—I'm kind of with you because, I, well, maybe I should say, despite what we've seen this postseason, it's still a superstars league. Actually, no, it's—it's it's, it's not despite what we've seen. Trey Young has revealed himself to be a superstar. Um, Giannis, for all of his faults, is still the two-time reigning MVP. Um, Paul George is reminding us that, hey, he's pretty damn good when he gets out of his own head. And then, 
you know, Phoenix as, as Booker and, uh, you know, Paul will hopefully be back, but like, it's still a stars league. All those players I mentioned are still have a higher ceiling than anybody on the Knicks right now. They need to get that guy. It's just, it's easier now for them to get that guy than it would have been a year ago. Um, but they still need to go out and do it, you know? And I think that's probably their real test in looking at to see how much they've changed because this summer free agency, you're not getting that guy because he does not exist. Uh, even if Kawhi Leonard wanted to leave LA, we don't know what that ACL injury is as right now at this recording. And there's a chance that a good chunk of his season next year could be in jeopardy. Um, and now he's just had a lot of problems with that right leg. And are you going to go out and either maintain your cap flexibility or are you going to throw these like largesse you know, offers at other free agents that are, you know, it's second tier at best, but you get to the third tier of free agents pretty quickly. And so I'm jumping around a bit from the outline I sent you, but like, what is like, what do you expect them or want them to do in free agency? Do you think that this is going to be a team that's linked to the, the sexiest names that are out there, which is, I think Lonzo ball is the one that's been linked to them since before the trade deadline. Or do you think that they're going to be really about preserving their powder for 2022 free agency which you know that'll be the last summer before if rj signs an extension that you're working with a a smaller cap hold with him and then presumably you have julius randall on his next deal after that summer as well i mean i i think they're gonna i think they will not to jump to another one of your questions in the in that line i think they're gonna sign someone to a multi-year deal um this summer and i think that that player is going to be you know a name guy um, what is a name? Like there are names that are out there. If, if you're at, like, here's the thing. There are so many different ways I could see them coming out of the summer improved and improved in a way that I find, um, palatable. And several of those ways have nothing to do with one another. For instance, is there a world where if they got, you know, if, Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, right? To both accept, let's say fair deals. Let's say two-year deals, right? And maybe a little bit more money than you'd like to pay. And you could at least talk yourself into, okay, we got two more shot creators on the roster, including one of them in a position that we we desperately need. Um, you know, we can maybe screw around and talk ourselves into getting top four again next year and, and putting a scare into somebody. And then that being a step towards like, okay, you know, when the next person requests a trade, we're more appealing for them to maybe want to come here and think that they're like the missing piece. Um, yeah, I could talk myself into that. I could also just, again, I'm getting ahead of myself. I could also talk myself into Lonzo Ball, despite the fact that I think Lonzo Ball is the is the very definition of like a quite nice player. He's he's a he's a good solid basketball player, right? Um, is he going to change anything for this franchise? Absolutely. Absolutely not. But he's young. He could do some stuff. Maybe he could get better. Um, is that a sexy move in my mind? No. I, I, you know, Josh Hart is another name that, like, you know, he's got the CAA connection, the whole thing. Like, there are different ways that they could go. I just think it's really important for them to not, and I've been saying this for years, well before this season, don't sign any contracts that box you in. You know, don't be the next person to sign. The, I don't. Not that there is really necessarily a Kemba Walker contract to be signed this offseason, or an Al Harford contract, or like some of these terrible deals we've seen signed. Like, don't sign that deal. As long as you don't, as long as you don't sign that deal, I could live with all famous last words. I could live with almost anything else that they did. One thing that I think we've preached a lot on on our pod is just like 
whoever you sign, if it's not like a Lowry or a DeRozan or someone that you know is is here for like a win now temporary thing, is like like in Lonzo's case, as long as the contract is tradable, then I can't really argue that it's a bad contract. It's it's the the reports out there of like four for a hundred that were ridiculous that I would that would be a bad move. Um, and I, this might just be from going, I mean, Dan, you're a Knicks fan, so you'll understand this, but also as a Mets fan, I <laughs> understand what incompetence looks like just having a front office that seems to know what they're doing and walked away from Gordon Hayward when the price got too high, walked away from other potential trades or, or free agent signings. But when the cost got too high, like having the structure in place, they, they kind of have my, my full trust on this. And like John said, if it was Lowry and DeRozan and we're just getting the 2017 Raptors back together. Awesome. <laughs> if they do pull the trigger on a superstar thing and go after Dame or one of these other big stars that forces their way to the Knicks. And that's, that's an element of this that I I've been thinking of as far as like, do I see whether it fits or not? The, the, the heat had no cap space and no ways to acquire a star. And Jimmy Butler just found his way to the Miami heat. If a guy wants to come play in New York, he will end up on the Knicks. Like that is, that's how this league works. The players control everything. And it's why I have much more confidence now that they have this front office in place, especially more than I did two years ago. The last time we had a big off season full of stars moving places. Yeah. I agree with the, I'm a big fan of create cap space when you need it. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, especially if you're a team that still wants to be good, where I might waver on the faith in the front office is I feel like the decisions they made last summer and the extent to which they were involved with Gordon Hayward was worrisome to me to begin with, but they did walk away. I think it's a lot easier to do that when you're coming off a season in which you won at a, you know, 25 win pace versus a, a 47 win pace or eight 48 win pace, whatever they're at this year, they've had that like taste of success. And I worry about Tibbs like barking in the front office's ear about wanting more talent there. That being said, I think it's, I would spend multi-year money on a guy like a Josh Hart, whether it's plug and play, helps you on defense, helps you space the floor. I do want to ask you about Lonzo quick before I, I ask what would be your ideal targets for outside of Lonzo. What is like the, you mentioned four and a hundred. I think he's very likely going to get at least four and like 84. I feel like is going to be his minimum. Is that money you're willing to give him knowing what you know? I think he's become more plug and play on offense than people give him credit for. I don't see the ability for him to drive in actual offense. He just doesn't have that half court. I don't want to say feel, but that attack mode. He's just can't shoot on drives. He's not going to run pick and roll. And this team needs that. We saw how important Derek Rose was to them this season, which yeah. look fantastic. But the fact that you needed Derek Rose to be that good in the year of 2021, yeah. you know, that scares the hell out of me. And so I'm just curious as to what would be your walk away price with Lonzo ball. Or do you just not even, if you had your druthers, do you just not even think that that should be someone who's close to the top of their free agency list? I, he, it's such a tough question to answer because if he's not at the top of their free agency list, who should be? And if you're going to, and then you're going to ask, okay, well, if it's somebody else, well, what are they getting? It's like all things being equal. Would I rather spend um, four years and $84 million on long, the ball or Spencer Dinwiddie four years and 84 million on and not saying that these guys are necessarily in the same price range but like you know Norm Powell is another guy 
Um, and then you talk about some of the older guys. Like, I completely agree with everything you said on Lonzo. We're, we're completely on the same page as what kind of player he is. I think there is still maybe some shooting upside there. And I wonder if there's a little bit of pick and roll upside as well. I mean, it's funny to say that about a player who is, is now entering his fifth season. Like you should know what this player is already at the same time. He spent his second year in the league on the same team as LeBron James. And he spent his last two years in the league on the same team as Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson. And obviously he was with Ingram, um, you know, before that in LA, I guess if, if some coach like Tibbs came to him and like, look, I need you to do more stuff. Um, like what can he do it? I don't, I, at the, while I, while I, at, on one hand feel like maybe that's not necessarily what he wants to do. I'm also not willing to say that he can't do a little bit more. Um, so I guess my, my, it's funny, my, I, I'm not in love with Lonzo. And at the same time, I'm like, I, I like Dinwiddie. Like Dinwiddie's kind of always been my guy. I'm a big fan of Spencer Dinwiddie. The injury is what the injury is. Um, you know, hopefully he'll be all right. But again, it's like, okay, you're going to sign a guard who, who we know can't really shoot. Um, that's great for the regular. I think they'd be fine in the regular season with Spencer Dinwiddie and maybe even a little bit in the playoffs. But I think we're seeing now in the playoffs, it's like, defenses will figure out a way to make that weakness, you know, like exploit it in a large way. Um, so how many years do you, do you give that guy? How contract, how, how, um, how tradable is that contract? Like the, at least Lonzo, I know if we sign him, I'm pretty sure he's always going to be an asset as long as it's not too much higher than the number you set. So that's kind of my take on uh, my lukewarm take on Lonzo. So there's two sides to this for me. One is the restricted free agency part of this and the recent article in the athletic. I, the four for 84. Yeah. I think I'd, I'd learn to live with it. I'd talk to myself into like, I talked to myself into <laughs> such, Hardaway being such a, a ringing pastor. endorsement. Oh, you like, <laughs> if he's productive, then I'll like, I'll figure out a way to be like, okay, like who else were they going to pay? They improved the team. I just think they're going to have to overpay for him because of what, Zion has said like they're gonna need to try and keep him happy while he's in New Orleans and by all accounts he would like to have Lonzo Ball on the team so if four for 84 ends up being the number and they get him for that I'll live with it I there's a second part of this that like the worst thing that happened to the Knicks in the playoffs was like seeing how Reggie Bullock couldn't take advantage of Trey young. And now every Knicks fan is like, we need a guy that could take advantage of Trey young. We need a guy that could dribble. And it's like, or you play a different team in the playoffs next year. (laughs) And Lonzo's actually helpful in that series. You shouldn't just look to beat that one team and that every year you're going to have the same type of playoff series. And I think Lonzo, if you look at him as a replacement for Bullock and not your point guard of the future, that's actually a productive, like he's a solid perimeter defender. He's a solid passer. Um, if you're looking at him as some of somewhat of a combo of what you got from Alec Burks, so I think Alec Burks is much more dynamic offensively. And then a replacement for Reggie Bullock as a shooter, like Lonzo's up to 38% from three. I don't see how that's a problem. And then you can still go shopping for a point guard. So I'm, as far as the number is concerned with Lonzo, I, I think whatever the Knicks offer, the Pelicans will match anyway just to keep him happy, happy unless they get ridiculous with it. So four for 84 to get back to answering your question would be the number. And I, I'm curious to see if that even gets it done. 
Yeah, I'm anyone who listens to this podcast knows I'm like a big fan of sabotaging other teams. So I would, if you think the Pelicans are going to match, you throw out the like the close to max offer sheet and you you just you fuck with their cap sheet. That's a big fan of doing that. I love that Giannis waited for every team to go through the free agency process last year before signing a super max, and that really screwed over Miami. Love it. I love that type of gamesmanship. Uh, Lonzo, I think though, for them at I like what Tibbs could do with him defensively because I don't think right now you look at him as the one, like a good one-on-one defender yeah. and just like kind of looking at what happened with Randall and how, how like much smarter RJ Barrett seemed in year two as a defender. And even what they got out of Bullock, like the, the breadth of assignments that Bullock covered this yeah. year was just incredible. I would be excited to see Lonzo ball defensively. I don't think he's a good fit for the offense unless you think signing him infers that the Knicks are actually going to run because that's where Lonzo ball. And that's why you can maybe get excited about it. But because of this, like, I don't know that the dynamics are perfect or that we could read into what his signing would mean. If it goes beyond what I think it's going to be like that average annual $21 million a year, that's my walk away point as a fan. I want Lonzo Ball to get all the money in the world. Big fans of players getting paid at teams' <laughs> expense. I don't care about billionaire pockets. But for the Knicks offense specifically, there are too many questions about his fit aside from the shooting. It's, it's wild. You know, John mentioned this what his shooting's up to five years into his career, what the biggest concern was for him coming in was that jumper. I don't even care yeah. about that. It's whatever you want to say about the form, how much has changed, how wonky it still looks. His shooting's not the issue. It's when you put the ball in his hands or if you need to put the ball in his hands. I don't know enough about how the Knicks will adjust their offense with him to think, yeah, you know what? Just go in and be the team with the most aggressive offer sheet because he will help you. Uh, I also want to see if they do sign, if, if he's a guy like, He's a really smart basketball player. He's a smart cutter. He finds cutters. Like, that's a nice thing. Like, you have R.J. Barrett already. R.J. Barrett, I feel like, not that he's been wasted for two years, but he's a guy that, like, likes to duck in for, for, for cuts and whatnot. And I feel like they have not at all built a team that, that is good at, like, that type of stuff. So if you get Lonzo and he's one more piece, like, do you, like, because you have a lot of money to spend, do you get another guy in the offense who could maybe facilitate that, that sort of, um, you know, I don't know what you'd want to call that smarter offense, opportunistic offense. Um, but that's just not how they played it all this year. So like, to your point, it's, it's just tough to, it's tough to see how it would, how it would look on the Knicks next year. It all goes back to me for who the point guard is. I, I think Lonzo next to Brent to, to Eric Bledsoe looked <laughs> average, which is, you know, props to him for even being able to look average. I think if you put him next to a better point guard that, I mean, you sent, you mentioned how Lonzo looks, looks in the offense with the Knicks. I have no idea what the Knicks offense is. I, a lot of it was just Randall do stuff. Derek Rose do stuff, hit a bunch of threes. And for like two months they did. So that's how they ended up as the four seed. I'm curious to see who the point guard is next to Lonzo. And I'm trusting that the hires, the powers that be that are much smarter than me also see that when it comes to evaluating what he is, if they were to try and add him to this roster. I guess that's where I diverge is if you have to pay him that much money and still need a point guard, like you're just not set up to pay him right now. There's, is, there are certain, there are certain yeah, teams fine. that I think are, is there, and I'll preface this with mine. Um, I think it's been people I've talked to, they think it's a wildly unpopular theory, but I'm a big fan of keeping things fluid in New York because I don't know, you know, if you give out four year deals to a guy like Lonzo, I don't think it's the end of the world, but I just don't know enough about what these Knicks are going to do long-term. I'd like to see them, just throw a two-year max at Kyle Lowry and see what happens. Two years, I think it's like a little bit over 80 million it amounts to. That's a ton of money that he's not going to, maybe someone gives him 
390. But um, I just think that uh, this is, I'm sorry, a weird notification just popped up on my screen that's tripping me up. But that would be the <laughs> route I'd like to see them go because it's an overpay, but it's such a smart player who gives you a lot of what you need. And you do keep things fluid where in two years, when RJ Barrett's next contract starts, when Randall's in, you know, year two or year one of his next contract, whatever it's going to be, you're still in position to change up some things where I do think if you went aggressively after a Alonzo ball, or maybe they just don't want to go aggressively after anyone, you might be pigeonholed into something else. But I'm just curious as to alternatively, what's your, you know, one or two free agents. And I'll start with you. Let's start with the Andrew first this time. Is there like a, a guy out there that you're really hoping to see them go after. You you said the guy Lowry. I don't know about two for eighty. Um, but you wouldn't just give him a two year max and it's like, I that, then that's your move though. Because then what else are you doing to improve the team? Like the roster you want is not one that just is going to be the four seed. You want to be able to see a path for this team to get better. There's also, and this is where him getting two for like sixty, two for fifty, even would be the path because. You'd like to think that like RJ Barrett's going to take a step. Emmanuel quickly is going to take a step. You want like the perfect scenario for me is Derek Rose comes back. Luca Vildoz is the real deal. And then quickly takes more of a more prominent role in the offense. I have no idea if Tibbs would ever trust the, the keys to the car to a 22 year old like that. But um, if are, are you, is that what you're thinking Lowry will command like two for 80 over two years? Or is that what you think the Knicks should do? I think try and, and for him to go to a sure team that, here. I think for him to go to a team that's a fringe contender, not an actual contender. Um, I think that's the type, like you need to blow other, if it doesn't take that much, no, don't give it. But if you, you know, if he prefers the heat or sign and trade with the Sixers um, and there are probably going to be teams that are dangling the third year, which is, I guess at a lower average annual value, is fine, but like then you're in the process of if they're offering, let's say three and seventy-five or three and eighty, because I do think that he could get to. I think he's going to take at least twenty million a year. You then have to blow those offers out of the water, and I'd rather deal with a two-year max cap it if I'm the Knicks than like a three-year one at twenty-five or more million dollars. Then I don't know how popular this is, but especially after the injury concerns we've seen in the playoffs. But if you're going to throw forty million a year at somebody and that's the plan. It's Chris Paul. Like I'd rather bring the point God in here and have him play in New York with his former agents. And that's like, why can't the Knicks be what the Suns were this year? Probably because Devin Booker isn't on the Knicks, but the point is why can't he elevate the ceiling of the Knicks the way he's done every single team he's ever been on. I, I almost wonder, Oh, look, I'm not saying Kyle Lowry is Chris Paul, but I do think this past year with what happened to the Raptors, I mean, I, I don't I felt like I personally didn't pay enough attention to the fact that they were playing in a city that was how many whatever in Tampa yeah yeah 2,000 miles away whatever it is from from a thousand I don't know my geography is terrible um but like they clearly had the season from hell and if you look at how they operated down the stretch of their season they're organizationally they were fine with like let's we're just going to like try to get as good a pick as we can and, and wipe our hands of this thing. I think it it's caused us to maybe not, not forget what Kyle Lowry is, but like if you would have said before the season, if you would have asked the like Chris Paul or Kyle Lowry question um, for, you know, who would you rather give, you know, three guaranteed years to following this season? I think, you know, based on maybe some of the injury stuff with Paul, you would have at least thought like, had a had a discussion with yourself in your head you probably would still pick Paul and now obviously Paul has led the Suns to the conference finals and Lowry didn't even make the playoffs 
Like if I could get Lowry for, for two for like 55, which is what personally I think you can get him for in New York, um, maybe two for 60, that, that elevates your ceiling, I think, so much more than any other single free agent signing you could make this summer. And then if you could just add like one more semi-dynamic piece, even if it's like maybe potentially through the draft, like I, I don't know who that other piece is. Oh, maybe it's Josh Hart. Um, you know, speaking of uh, things that were recently said on podcasts. Um, but like, yeah, I'd, I'd be cool with Kyle Lowry. I love Kyle Lowry. Kyle Lowry, like how many times last year were we all sitting here and we're like, if the Knicks had a real point guard, they'd be a 50-win team. That's the thing about Lonzo that I think also gets lost is literally anybody but number six is an upgrade over what the Knicks have. <laughs> so I, as a result, I think Lonzo for four for 84 is like, well, he's not number six. Can't be the evaluation of why you do it because like John is at number six. And there were moments where I think you could have put up, if not better, at least the same production <laughs> as number six last year. Yeah. When you look at their own free agents, and I think this is probably something that's just undercovered about them. Everyone assumes they have all this cap space and yeah. like they do. And the cap holds on these guys aren't huge, but you do have, I would say two fairly important free agents in Alec Burks and Erwin's Noel. You don't have bird rights on. It's like, that's going to, based off what they were paid this year, it's going to probably take cap space if you want to resign them. Um, you also have Reggie Bullock. You have early bird rights on him. I think he gets the full MLE from somebody, which would then lead me to believe that they're going to have to use cap space to resign him too. You do have Derek Rose, which he's going to command less than his cap hold um, or maybe right around his cap hold. But is there of that group of their own free agents, who do you John view as the most must keep? Um, I will preface this answer by saying it, it obviously it depends on what else they do, but on on the surface, it's, it's obviously Derek Rose. Um, he was, <laughs> if they didn't have Derek Rose in these playoffs, they would have gotten swept and uh, with an average margin of defeat by, I don't know, 20 points. Um, he was the only thing that was keeping them in a lot of those games. Um, and he was there. I mean, if you look at the on off numbers, he had the best on off numbers of, of, you know, last year. Um, he is so important to everything they, that they did in terms of juicing the offense. Like, the difference between the first half of the season and the second half of the season was they like, there were so many times, you know, over the first like 40 games or so where you just like, how is this team scoring another bucket? Like with all due respect to Julius Randle and then Rose kind of helped solve that problem. Um, that said, if they sign Kyle Lowry, um, does Derek Rose become as essential well, Lowry plays 30 minutes a night. You figure Emmanuel quickly, they're going to give him maybe a little bit more like ball handling duties. Like it be, so Derek Rose is the, is the answer right now. I think between Burks and Bullock, I'm also a Bullock guy, first and foremost. I think there's a lot of fans out there who feel like Burks is more important um, because he can put the ball on the floor. He can play point guard in a pinch. Um, but I am not reading too much into the Atlanta series. I like Reggie Bullock was massively important to this team this year. Um, and his shooting, and it's not just like you look at his shooting percentage and whatever it is, it's at 41, 42%. It's like, it's a quick release and he's not a movement shooter, but he also relocates. And he's like, he's, he really, when he was going, that's what brought their offense to another level, almost as much as anybody else on the team. Um, 
Noel, I don't think they need to bring back, to be honest with you. <laughs> and like, Bur- you know, Burks, we'll see what else they do. But like, I, I thought Burks was really important for them too. But we'll, um, yeah, Rose, then, then Bullet. That's a, the easy answer is that. Um, I think I'm just not interested in telling me how irre- irreplaceable a center is in 2021. I think Mitchell Robinson coming back is an option. Taj Gibson, I'd honestly put as a more important free agent than oh Taj of yeah course, Taj. <laughs> like, Taj Gibson, Taj. I, I would rather have him back as the backup center or as yeah. in like the the third center on this team and who knows what they do in the draft if it's you know for getting someone that can be a backup center to Mitchell Robinson who will inevitably end up playing important minutes because Mitchell Robinson just cannot stay on the court unfortunately um I I would hope that Emmanuel quickly evolves into what we got from Alec Burks this year. Your hope is that he's your spark off the bench that gives you that type of instant offense. We'll see if these new rules about unnatural mm. shooting motions affects Quickly's production next year. But um, yeah, I Derek Rose of those four or five is clearly number one. Plus, you want to talk about affordable contracts. I think if Tibbs came to him and said a hundred grand, but like you get to play with me, he would consider it at least. So as far as I'm concerned, Derek Rose one Bullock two, just defensively and how streaky he was throughout the season. You want him back. And then like the other part of knows Noel is, and this might just be wishful thinking for me. I would like to see Obi Toppin play some minutes at the five. So that's another person that can replace Nerlens Noel in the rotation. If as far as, options for the Knicks going forward. I agree that centers are eminently replaceable, but given the injury Mitchell Robinson's coming back from, and I'd be curious to see what top in at the five lineups, like, like who's your four in that situation. Like that's the tough part is I've also don't trust Tibbs to actually play top in at the five. I'm just hoping there is a world where he's like, Oh wow. Our most athletic player in the playoffs. We should have him on the court more often than he isn't. Yeah, I mean, look, he played night and day. When you look like the last, like, I don't know, few weeks, months of the season, like he just looked like a player who understood how to play in the NBA. Yeah. So I hope he gets more minutes for them. I just had a point guard with him. He finally had a point guard with him, you know? I don't view Noel as the most important for you. I want to make it clear. I just think he's a little bit more important, especially because, one, the Mitchell Robinson injury. And we did at least see, like, Mitchell Robinson's foul rate was down a lot this year um, before he got injured. Yeah. So that does concern me. Mine's actually Bullock is the most important free agent to me because I view him as a fit for whatever iteration of this yep. team comes next. And you guys already mentioned with the defense and the thing that about his shooting, and there was kind of like a turn towards the middle of the year where like the volume just went through the roof. And I think that's important for a team that I think needed to shoot more threes. And I also don't want to be in a position. And again, this all depends on if you don't re-sign Bullock you made other moves, but like if that move is Lonzo and Bullock as part of the collateral damage, all of a sudden it's RJ Barrett, like has to cover like probably the toughest wing defensive assignments on a more consistent basis, which would worry me. So I just view everything he did as, as so important. And I think he's the, he's like the one guy that they, of their main guys that I think they need to bring back the most. Well, I'm shocked, Dan, that you didn't mention another potential free agent. That's look, technically- <laughs> look, I know my thoughts on Frankie Lakina are not shared on this this three person group, let alone the rest of the the Knicks or NBA like intelligentsia. I will say, if Frankie Lakina is good enough defensively to where you want to put him in after not playing 
for most of the game on Trey Young and then just be if you need him in that situation and I'm not going to blame him for that gaffe because he played like what three seconds in the first half or whatever it was something stupid yeah. like that mm-hmm. maybe he should have been in the rotation I do think there was just some politics at play because a certain somebody was fired as his agent back in the day I would love to see Frank Nielakina be back I want to see him somewhere where he could play but so he's number one in my heart but I think functionally Reggie Bullock is their most important free agent and I think Alec Burks is probably number two for me for all the reasons. Just he put the ball on the floor. He made some like really big shots down the stretch of close he, games this year. He, he was their most important fourth quarter player this season. Uh, if you take into account everything he did uh, from game one to even, you know, g- game one of the regular season, then game, game one of the, the playoffs, which was his only good playoff game. But like, again, they wouldn't have been in that game without Alec Burks. To be clear, I'm not as anti Frank as I've let on. I, I do, I do wish my like I'm going into the playoffs. It was please bench number six, and it was play anybody play, else like right. to play yeah. Frank, not to go with eight people. Like I was hoping that the the minutes that were dedicated to him would then go to a much smarter, much more productive defender that shot forty seven percent from three this year. So like I'm with you on I, I'm if if anything, my hopes for Frank, and we can close out the Frank Nilagina part of this pod. This, this is way. part one of 157. Oh, right excuse there. me. <laughs> um, I would like to see Frank just go somewhere and play so we can know once and for all if he actually is, like if it was just a Knicks thing that he, <laughs> like the Knicks couldn't figure out a way to use him or if he goes somewhere and it's Trevor Ariza where it's like, oh, he's on a team that is contributing toward winning, you know? I think it's pretty clear. And I will say this is probably the version of the Knicks that came closest to using him this way. Frank Nielakina's best bet at having success in the NBA is as a three and D wing, essentially mm-hmm. don't yeah. put the ball in his hands ever ask him to space the floor. Can he get the volume up there on offense? And if he's able to hit threes at that type of clip with higher volume, that's a, you know, that's a top five NBA player. There was like three weeks this year. <laughs> there was like three weeks this year where a Derek Rose had was struggling with, was with COVID. Um, Alec Burks missed some time because he was in protocols. Reggie Bullock would miss a game or two. And Frank got an opportunity and was used the way you just suggested. I would hope that a team would be able to use him that way. Plus, we're about to see him go dominate the Olympics like we did the last time we had an international tournament. And the Knicks will somehow get laughed at because Frank Nilakina looked productive somewhere else. Uh, <laughs> I was laughing at them when he was playing well um, with the national team the last uh-huh. time. Uh, well, back then it was laughing at it was laughing at Steve Mills and Scott Perry and all of them. So yeah, it was a little bit better. Look, at least they can cite patriotism for benching him um, in those big moments this there year. There you go. <laughs> that's that's what we want. Is the Knicks don't play international players? That's definitely a exactly where this tool. is all been going. <laughs> I'll, go. I'll loop these two together since we are pressed for time. Randall can sign an extension this year. John has did what happened in the playoffs give you any reticence about what you would want to give him. I think the number that was thrown out like publicly and then even behind the scenes was just four year and a hundred seems four years and a hundred million seems fair. Is that, you know, a $25 million a year price point, something you're comfortable with. And there's also Mitchell Robinson's team option, which I think is even more interesting following his injury, because if you want to preserve flexibility, it's pick up the team option. Yes. He goes to unrestricted free agency next year, but the cap hold is so small. You could still pay him more if you need to. At the same time, centers are cheaper to begin with, and he's coming off an injury. There might be, and I'm not trying to you know, deflate his price point on his behalf, but from the team's perspective, he might be willing to take long-term security at a, at a cheaper rate now as a restricted free agent coming off this fractured right foot. 
Yeah, I mean, the Randall question isn't really a question to me because they, they're uh, capped, at, as you just mentioned, they're capped at what they could pay him um, because it's it's 120% of what his salary is going to be next year, which is the top salary, like $26 million. If you factor in um, the bonuses that he got, which I, as my as I read the CBA, um, they they should that is what they um, can do. Um, like if you okay, so he gets paid, you know, four for whatever something in the one teens, you know, that makes him um, what's going to wind up after like some other extensions are signed this summer. It's going to make him like a borderline top fifty player in terms of um, pay scale in the league. Um, even the version of Julius Randle that we saw against the Hawks, he's worthy of being the, you know, 47th highest paid player in basketball. So that's if he wants to accept an extension, whether it's two years, three years, four years, option, no option, whatever, give, give him all the money you can. Um, the Mitch question is more interesting to me because the one thing that you didn't mention that's a possibility is they pick up the team option. So he plays next year for them for $1.8 million, but then they could still negotiate an extension with him. It's only the, the the most that they could offer him. Different rule than the the Randall rule, but still, there, there's a limit. Is a number starting at I believe about twelve million dollars a year. If I'm Mitchell Robinson and I just fractured my foot or whatever the hell happened, um, and I'm seven feet tall and I've made thus far five million dollars in my NBA career, whatever, and I've had to hand that over some of that to how many different agents? Um, I know he's not handing per agent, but like you get the point. Um, like, I don't know if the Knicks are willing to give me three years at the most they could give me or even four years at the most they could give me. I'd sure think about that. And then what I like about it is the Knicks could play hardball. Um, and again, I'm not trying to, just like you, you want players to get paid. I too want players to get paid. But um, I also recognize the fact that, as you said, investing a lot of money in a center um, who has not really shown you much on offense. I mean, obviously he's a devastating lob threat, but like he hasn't added anything else to his game, at least outside of like mixtapes. Um, like they have Nerlens Noel who they can negotiate with. They know Taj Gibson could play 25 minutes a night. There are good centers in this draft where they're picking. We have seen teams of late. Look at um, uh, Beef Stew on the Pistons last year. That dude walked right into the Pistons lineup and was like contributing almost from day one. Like, they have so many options. They don't need to feel like, oh my God, if Mitchell Robinson leaves an unrestricted free agency a year from now, we're screwed. So I say pay him 1.8 million. If you can negotiate an extension, great. If not, you can't. So as far as Randall goes, um, I'm big on sample size. And like there were stretches this year where like I'm looking at his game log now to find a specific one on the fly, but I would just tell you there were stretches this year where he had moments like he did or like five game stretches where he couldn't make a lot of shots. And because the Knicks were so ISO heavy, it was tough for him to really get going. Um, I do not, my, my thoughts on him just haven't changed because of five games. That's just how I operate. The much larger sample size of the regular season tell me that this is a guy getting better. This is a guy that likes to work on himself, work on his game. And my trust is more that the Knicks see that and will look to find better pieces around him that complement him will help him get better that way. If he will take the extension that we talked about, I absolutely give it to him. I don't think he will, which is, you know, a, a bigger conversation. Um, Mitchell Robinson, I, I, John said everything I, I would have said. I think having him come back and then, 
talking to him about an extension is the option. Uh, having that value at 1.8 million is, I think, one of the more valuable contracts in the NBA if he stays healthy, which it just takes one season for him to stay healthy. And then all of a sudden you have like one of the better defensive, like Mitch isn't like Rudy Gobert, which uh, that's a duh. You know, but like it's not the the type, but it's not like he's like just a rim protector. He's a guy that can get out on the wing. Like, riddle me this, Batman. Would the Jazz have rather had Rudy Gobert down the stretch or a healthy Mitchell Robinson while the uh, the Clippers were playing three point shootout? Okay, we're playing uh, a three point contest down the stretch of the second half of that game. There's your hot take. That's yeah, that's a, and I think it's a bad one. What happens I think is, in the second look half? At that Jazz. Robinson is able to guard their wing, like he has all most of his. The career. problem is that the Jazz wings can't guard the wings, and that was the bigger issue in the Clippers series. So if you but had, they if were you targeting Mitch, him in Game Six, though, is my point. But if you had Mitch, there would have just been there still would have just been ways around it because the Jazz wing defensive talent. There's a there's a talent drain there, and unless you're going to go bully ball like in one on one situations, whether it's Mitch, whether it's Rudy Gobert, like any big man who wasn't like an actual wing would have been a liability. Even if you had a wing, even if you had like a lockdown wing in that scenario, Utah was vulnerable at enough points on the perimeter. There would have just been more holes there. And so I feel like you're Mr. Big sample size over here. A lot into a small sample size performance. But I asked about the one game sample size performance. That's all. I'm not saying over an 82 game season, would you rather have the defensive player of the year, Mitchell Robinson? This was more a credit to what Mitchell Robinson can give you in that it's not just rim protection as everybody applies to centers. This is a guy that can cover a lot of ground from corner to corner because I've seen it. The, his only issue is health. He's gotten his fouls down. He's a, I mean, the pick and roll that killed them in the playoffs because they couldn't stop it. Imagine Mitchell Robinson stepping in against Trey Young and Clint Capella. I, I think if you ha- get one healthy season out of Mitchell Robinson, it's, it's going to be a positive more than a negative. I think you might have just turned me against Mitchell Robinson, by the way. <laughs> there was, I, Mitchell Robinson, there was like more controlled arnac, ar- anarchy to his game this year, which I really like. It was just, that more under control. Um, moving on quickly, since we are pressed for time. I think this was last year. I think the national discourse was Mitchell Robinson's the most important Knicks prospect. Yeah. Um, now it's shifted to Julius Randle's the single most important player in the organization. I think part of that is also a lot of people probably expected this year's draft pick to be the single most important part of the organization. Uh, yeah. My stance is, I think RJ Barrett is the single most important player to this organization because he is, I think what we've seen from Randall second team, all NBA, that is Randall at his peak. That is Randall at his peak. We still don't necessarily know what RJ can become and what he showed defensively this year. And I know his shooting improved. I, I think I mentioned this on your part. I marveled at just what he was doing. It was on the ball, but just like the reads he was making away from the ball too. How do you guys view him and his ceiling long-term? Have you seen, enough from him where you think that he deserves or will get more initiation responsibility or hit more of like those unassisted jumpers. Andrew's laughing at me right well, now. No, no, no. Exactly do, you know, do you know the history of one Jonathan Macri and RJ Barrett? Well, I could, I could say it briefly if, if you want. Go I ahead. am not so privy it, to it. Okay. Go ahead. It John. was telling yourself. We recorded a mailbag pod. Um, it was, it was six not, games into the year. Six games into. The I want to say it was more like seven or eight, but whatever it is, whatever it was, RJ was had not hit a three since 
the first game of the year, or maybe he was on his second one or the one for 21, as opposed to the over 21, um, two different streaks. So in my defense, like he couldn't hit the far side of a barn. He was forcing up real, like a lot of garbage at the rim. Um, and I was asked to rank the Knicks trade assets and I put him fifth and I put him after Randall Toppin, and um, the next two years of and the next two years first round draft picks and then from that point essentially for the rest of the season although he kind of slumped a little bit in the middle there for a, hand, a couple handfuls of games and then towards the end like he was a different player and if you look at his um effective field goal percentage from i think it was literally from the day that i recorded that pod until the end of the year and then you factored in his points his rebounds and assists like he you know he, he was up there with all of like the guys in the league um, I completely agree with your take, Dan. I think there is a chance that by the end of next season, we are looking at RJ Barrett and we're saying he's the best player on the Knicks and that it's not close. Um, and that is with all due respect to Julius Randle, who was amazing this year. And I've fought vociferously for or argued vociferously for in terms of he should get MVP votes, all NBA, the whole thing. But like RJ is a consistent, like, pull-up mid-ranger away not just that it's the pull-up mid-ranger and it's like he needs to get five percent better at the rim not 10 or 15 five percent better at the rim like one or two of those shots that he takes every game like they don't need to go like he just needs to eliminate those couple of shots every game that just have no chance of going in and that are forced attempts and guess what he has said already, or his, his trainer said in an article that came out a few weeks ago, that that's the plan for him to work on the next two summers is wiggle in the lane, um, getting to the, to the rim, you know, in a place where he in a way that he can get up better shots um, and then actually hitting more of those shots. Um, and then the three, like we didn't see any, again, like threes off movement. No threes off the dribble. No, but like, you know, you saw some sidestep there, you know, where he's doing a little stuff like it's there. It's all there. He just needs to put it together. Um, I'm so excited to see what he is next year. And then just since this, that was our, I think our last question, I just want to say, cause we haven't mentioned his name, Obi Toppin. I can't, other than RJ, he's the guy I'm most excited about to see next year. He's another guy I think could take a, a big leap between, between now and next season. Yeah. I, I echo everything John said. I just wanted the, the hilarity of the shit John had to go through once he dropped that mailbag pod. And in the moment, I remember editing it being like, either he's really right and this is depressing or this is going to come back to bite him. And then later in the year when he was asked to re-rank them, he was like, I never said he was that low. And I intentionally put into the clip that we posted on social, like recorded on January this. (laughs) John had to live it down. I did. Um, RJ Barrett has done nothing but improve since he got into the NBA and a lot of his rookie season struggles. I contribute to, or attribute to the fact that David Fisdale was here, that there was seven power forwards on the team that needed the ball. And he was just asked to stay in the corner. And this year he showed that when he has the ball in his hands and when he stays in the corner, he can be productive. And I, as John mentioned, I'm excited to see what that next level of improvement looks like next season. The sidestep, few sidestep threes that he hit made me excited. I'm more when you look at the cadence of his game with the ball in his hands. I think mm. there's a chance he becomes a really, really good playmaker for others yeah. if you give him the opportunity to do it. Yeah. This was great, guys. Um, I know you have to get out of here. So, folks, follow them on Twitter if you're not already. Andrew Claudio can be found at Andrew J. Claudio underscore spelled exactly as it sounds. 
check out John at JC Macri MBA. That's at JC M A C R I NBA. And also follow Nick's Film School on Twitter, which is spelled exactly as it doesn't sound at Nick <laughs> Film S K O O L. Thank you guys so much again for coming on the podcast. Um, rest assured, I will be bothering you again in the future. Absolutely, Dan. Thank you. Can't wait, Dan. Appreciate you having us on.